to the latest episode of APPA's Public Power Now. I'm Paul Schimpoli, News Director at APPA. On this episode, we're speaking with Adrian Clare and Meg McNall, both of whom are partners with the law firm Thompson Coburn. Along with other attorneys in Thompson Coburn, Adrian and Meg worked on a newly released manual related to the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act of 1978, or PURPA. The manual is sponsored by APPA, the Edison Electric Institute, the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association, and the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. Adrian and Meg, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. So, um, Adrian and Meg, just to kind of get things started um, before we dive into the specifics of the manual, can you both tell us a little bit about your energy regulatory backgrounds and also about um, Thompson Coburn? Sure. Uh, this is, I'll start. It's Adrian. Uh, first, Paul, thanks to you and to APPA for having us and allowing us to discuss PURPA in general in that compliance manual that we'll talk about a little bit more specifically. I will answer that question in reverse. So I'll start broadly and then get a little bit more granular. Uh, Thompson Coburn provides practical and economical solutions to clients' business demands. And we've got offices uh, in Chicago, Dallas, New York, Los Angeles, Southern Illinois, St. Louis, and Washington, D.C. And we practice across uh, more than 50 areas of law. Uh, Our firm is guided by what we call our total commitment. And that total commitment is to our clients, our communities, and to each other. And our energy group at Thompson Coburn is mostly in our Washington, D.C. office, but it is a nationwide practice. So we represent clients in electric, natural gas and oil pipelines, uh, as well as some work in hydroelectric matters. And we provide counsel and assistance with regulatory, transactional and enforcement actions. Uh, And a number of our clients, notably, are public power entities that are APPA members. We're very proud of that. Um, My practice getting down to the more granular. My practice is mostly federal regulatory work. So I I practice mostly before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and a number of the partners and associates in our office uh, and our practice do that. Uh, I've practiced some before state commissions. I got my start as a law clerk to two administrative law judges at FERC, and I've enjoyed this career ever since then. Uh, And most of my clients are public power entities. So that's both municipally um, owned utilities as well as cooperative utilities. And we represent them in all sorts of matters, mostly electric and natural gas pipeline proceedings, including PURPA, which we're going to talk about today. And that also means litigation and and other proceedings before FERC, as well as uh, practice before the U.S. Courts of Appeals. I will turn it over to Meg just to give an overview of her practice. Sure. Thanks to APPA for having us on today. Uh, I do a lot of what Adrian just described. Uh, Most of my practice is with uh, electric utilities and specifically those that are are municipally owned. Um, Much of what I work on relates to um, energy market policy uh, issues transmission policy and rate making issues. I spend a fair amount of time on PURPA matters, actually. Um, that's That's been um, more and more of my practice, particularly within the last couple of years uh, in some of the changes that we're going to talk about today. Uh, and I work a little bit on NERC compliance, um, as well as just kind of general client counseling work um, on different issues that, that come up from time to time um, and that involve uh, operating an electric utility within a city. Um, I think that's it in a nutshell. Okay, great. Um, now, um, before we dive into the specifics of the manual, I don't want to presuppose that um, our listeners are, are necessarily familiar with, with PURPA. So for those listeners who may not be familiar with the law, could you provide an overview of it um, and describe its significance for electric utilities? 
Sure, I can take that. And then, um, Adrian, if you have anything to add, um, please jump in. I I'm glad you asked this question because um, even as an electricity law practitioner, PERPA really is kind of a niche area. Um, so just to provide a little bit of um, background and for the purposes of this podcast, um, when we're talking about PERPA or the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act um, of 1978, to give its full name, um, we're really talking about one part of a broader piece of legislation that was included in the National Energy Act of 1978. Um, this uh, statute was intended by Congress to provide for increased energy conservation and efficiency to improve reliability um, and ensure uh, equitable retail rates. And I guess most importantly for, for what we're going to talk about, to encourage domestic energy use. In terms of the National Energy Act and purpose specifically, it's really important to keep in mind the broader context for this set of laws, which um, was enacted in the, the late 70s. Um, throughout the 70s, the country was experiencing an increase in demand for electricity. And at the same time, we were experiencing a series of energy crises um, that was that were really the result of some of geopolitical facts, and specifically an oil embargo that was imposed by the OPEC countries. Um, so, so these kind of broader factors, coupled with concerns in the 70s about shortages in domestic natural gas production, which are, are that's kind of hard to, to believe that we, we thought that there might be a shortage in natural gas back in the 70s, given some of what we've seen evolved since, um, but caused President Carter and Congress at the time to think about renewable resources as one way to diversify our national resource mix and to reduce some of our dependence on foreign sources of petroleum. Um, and at that time, and again, this is very different from today, we generated um, around 15% of our electricity using petroleum. So um, one of the ways that Congress sought to encourage development of renewable resources was through Section 210 of PERPA. And that's the part of the law that includes what most of us in the energy industry think about when we talk about PERPA. Uh, it's entitled Cogeneration and Small Power Production. And the intent of this section of the statute was to encourage um, renewable resource development, such as wind and solar resources. Um, and particularly renewable uh, sources that were relatively small. And the way that PERPA accomplishes that encouragement of renewable resources um, is by requiring electric utilities, including electric utilities that are owned by municipal utilities, um, to purchase electric energy and capacity from renewable generation. Um, and those uh, renewable resources are referred to in PERPA as qualifying facilities or QFs. And finally, um, PERPA required those purchases to take place. And again, you know, using using some um, regulatory jargon here, but at what is referred to as an avoided cost rate. So following um, the enactment of PERPA in the late 70s, FERC issued a series of important orders that established its regulations related to this must-purchase obligation for electric utilities. And it also established um, more detailed criteria implementing other elements of the statute, such as um, what types of renewable resources qualify as QFs uh, and things like that. Um, 
And then finally, FERC developed the concept of an avoided cost rate in more detail. Um, and again, the short version of uh, avoided cost is that it's supposed to represent the cost to the electric utility um, that, that it avoids in purchasing from a renewable resource as opposed to going out on the market and buying energy or entering into a PPA or even generating some of that power itself. I'll stop there and uh, see if Adrian has anything to add or Paul, if you have any follow-up. No, I think that you covered it just, just great, Meg. Yeah, I think you covered, I think you touched on all the bases. Um, so thanks for providing that uh, thorough overview. Um, so yeah, just kind of switch gears here and kind of dive into the manual itself. Uh, just as a threshold question, um, could you provide uh, details in terms of the purpose of the manual? Sure. Uh, so the, it's Adrian again, the, the, the overall sort of threshold purpose of this Title II, uh, the purpose Title II compliance manual that was recently completed um, by our firm, was to update the state of the law for this industry um, since the, the, the manual was last prepared in 2014. And so there'd been a comprehensive, along the same lines as what we've We've got now um, this this current update. There was a comprehensive manual that had been prepared in 2014, but obviously that reflected not just PERPA, the statute itself, but FERC's regulations for implementation of PERPA as they existed at the time. And since then, there have been a number of significant developments, both in the industry, um, but then a number of regulatory developments that we'll touch on. And so the first purpose, threshold purpose of the, the uh, manual was to update that, update the manual to reflect the current state of the law, the current uh, state of, of the regulations. The other sort of purpose of this is that it's intended to be a guide. And so what we've prepared um, and, and what the manual serves for is to be used as an aid for state regulatory agencies or utilities as they're dealing with issues related to PURPA in light of these recent events and regulatory actions involving PURPA implementation. And so as an example, uh, there've been a number of cases over the years the way that the statute works, um, PERPA itself has certain requirements like the, the must purchase obligation that Meg just talked about. Those are all set forth in the federal statute. But the federal statute, PERPA, also requires FERC to create implementing regulations. And those imp implementing regulations over time have evolved, have changed as the industries have changed. Uh, for example, you know, more solar development, um, the different types of qualifying facilities that are being developed. The regulations didn't necessarily fit every single circumstance. And so with these changes in the commission's regulations, um, the associations, including APPA, thought it was a good idea to update the manual to reflect the current state of the law. And, and what the manual is used for or to be used for is to aid in compliance. And so for state commissions, for um, public power utilities, those who are either developing or, or have to comply with the regulations. And, and as Meg said, electric utilities, which are the entities that are charged with complying with PERPA and FERC's implementing regulations, includes municipal utilities. Uh, municipal utilities are generally not subject to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's rate-making jurisdiction, but for purposes of PERPA, um, they are covered. So this manual serves as a sort of compliance manual after giving some of the, the overview of how the industry is operating and what the regulations mean, it's it's to assist in compliance with what has become um, a pretty detailed or rather detailed uh, and complex area of, of law. So Adrian, you referenced um, recent events related to PERPA. So the next question I have for you may be moot at this point, um, but I wanted to give uh, 
you and Meg an opportunity to maybe elaborate a little more. Is there any additional explanation in terms of why now is a particularly appropriate time to release this revised manual? Sure. This is Meg, and I, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, so as Adrian mentioned, in uh, 2020, FERC issued a major set of revisions to its PERPA regulations. And um, at, uh, order number 872 is, is um, how the how the order is numbered. but um, you know, that order really um, acknowledges that it's definitely not the 1970s or early 80s anymore. And a lot has changed um, since PURPA was first enacted and since FERC um, first issued its um, implementing regulations. Um, some things that have changed include the national resource mix. Uh, we no longer generate significant amounts of power using petroleum, for example. And um, renewable resources, particularly wind and solar resources, have reached um, a, a pretty significant penetration level in various parts of the country uh, for reasons that in a lot of cases had nothing to do with PERPA. So these changes, um, I think, caused FERC to take another look at some of the policies that really had been in place for a couple of decades at least, um, if not longer. So a, a few other things that are different um, include that we, we now have organized, robust, and pretty liquid markets for energy and in certain cases capacity throughout the country. And that wasn't part of the landscape in the 70s. Um, and FERC has in recent years taken steps to make sure that its organized markets are accessible to supply resources that are intermittent or smaller so that there's more of a level playing field than I think there was, you know, in the early 80s, for example. Um, technology with respect to some of these renewable and intermittent sources has changed to the point where these resources are, uh, in a lot of cases, very cost effective and may even be less expensive than fossil-based generation. Um, and finally, we've seen in the last couple of decades in particular, a proliferation of state policies like renewable portfolio standards that have resulted in increases in renewable procurement by electric utilities and a shift away from fossil supply. So taken together, these factors cause FERC to revisit and really modernize its PERPA regulations so that they reflect the current industry landscape. Um, in terms of markets, in terms of technology, um, and in terms of state climate and procurement policies. So the manual, I think, is really reflective of where FERC is at this moment in terms of what is necessary to meet the requirements of, of the purpose statute. What about uh, the role of Congress in all of this? Are they, where, where, where do they, what, what role do they play in all of this? Um, I'll, I'll start off with an answer to that, and, and then we can expand on it. So PURPA, um, as Meg explained at the top, is is a federal statute, and so obviously enacted by Congress. And that federal statute is what FERC is, is it sets forth the key elements of PURPA. And then FERC is to, to develop implementing regulations. And those implementing regulations for FERC appear in Title 18 of the Code of Federal Regulations, which is where FERC's regulations are. It's Part 292 is, is what has the, the PURPA regulations in it. But to your point, Paul, and it's a great question, one of the things that, ha that happens um, with purple implementation is that as technology has changed or there have been other uh, changes in, in um, regulatory env environments or resources, as Meg said, like the, the um, expansion of renewable resources, utilities 
call upon FERC to revisit the regulations. For example, you know, change some aspects of the avoided cost calculation or change whether or not the avoided cost calculation should exist. And I'll, I'll explain what avoided cost is. But the compensation that's paid to QFs is set by what's called an avoided cost uh, methodology. And that's the amount that a utility is to pay for QF output. And so there, when there are calls upon, for, and for years there have been calls for FERC to revisit PURPA, FERC can't do that. FERC is a creature of statute. And so the only thing that FERC can do, it only has the, the authority or power that is granted to it by Congress. So what FERC has consistently said to industry as it is, you know, as industry has made calls for FERC to re revisit PURPA is that there's a limit on what FERC can do. It can only do what Congress has allowed it. And so within the, the, the bandwidth of what's in the federal regulation, I mean, the federal statute, excuse me, FERC can change the regulations, but it has to operate within the statute. So, for example, the must purchase obligation, which is, as Meg said, one of the key aspects of PURPA, FERC cannot issue a rule that says we're just going to do away with entirely the requirement for utilities to purchase the output of a qualifying facility. That's in the federal statute. And so, unless Congress changes it, it can't change. Um, and over the years, at least the last, I would say, decade, there have been frequent calls, sometimes, um, you know, energy bills or legislation will have in it a, a piece that addresses PURPA. There have been, uh, I think it was two years ago, pre-COVID, there was a series of hearings uh, by the Senate Energy and Natural Resource Committee on whether or not to revisit PURPA, you know, whether or not to change that federal statute. But it has not yet happened that there's been overall reform of the statute. So what we're dealing with in the manual and what Meg was discussing are changes that FERC has made recently still in line with the authority and directives that were granted and, and directed by Congress in PURPA itself. So Congress has a huge role in this. And it, it's sort of the way I see it, you know, Congress sets the bounds within which FERC can act. And what we're dealing with is FERC's implementation of what per, what FERC, uh, Congress has given to it. The, the only other question I had point was, um, what, if there are any um, aspects of FERC's recent changes to its PURPA regulations that might be particularly noteworthy for public power utilities? So we talked earlier about some of the changes in the industry um, that we've observed and that kind of animated FERC's um, revised policies in Order 872. Um, and so some of what we've seen from FERC in recent years is aligned with those industry changes. So for example, um, in Order 872, this, this recent set of, of regulatory revisions, um, FERC looks heavily uh, toward market pricing as a way of measuring in electric utilities avoided costs. There's a lot of focus in that order on um, markets. And so and I think the reason for that is, like we talked about earlier, the maturation of some of those um, organized markets throughout the country. Um, we've also seen focus from FERC on new technologies. Um, I do a lot of my regulatory work in California, and I know there and in other parts of the country, developers are very interested in incorporating battery storage um, technologies along with intermittent resources like solar. Um, and some of FERC's orders in the PURPA arena are uh, related to how QS should consider storage components in determining whether or not they meet FERC size criteria uh, for QS. And we talk a lot about this in the manual, but that's something that I know public power utilities are, are following closely, just how, how is battery storage going to be integrated into our resource mix. Um, 
And then finally, um, we talk about this pretty extensively in the new PURPA manual, but um, FERC has recently changed its size threshold for qualifying facilities that are assumed to have access to the organized markets. And it's lowered that threshold from 20 megawatts to 5 megawatts. And what this means for electric utilities, again, including public power that are located in parts of the country with organized markets, um, such as those administered by ISOs and RTOs, um, those utilities can actually make a filing with FERC to terminate their obligation to purchase power from qualifying facilities that are now larger than five megawatts. And again, this speaks to FERC's market-oriented policies and the steps that FERC has taken to ensure that its markets are accessible to smaller resources. Yeah, I'll add just one one brief point on, on what Meg put up, just one finer point on what Meg said, and, and that's that in the, um, as APPA always does in these, these FERC rulemaking proceedings, APPA filed comments on behalf of its membership and, and thankfully took the leadership role on this issue as well. And one of the things that APPA advocated and, and applauded FERC for was this flexibility in pricing that Meg was talking about. So in setting what that avoided cost would be that utilities have to pay for the output of qualifying facilities, the commission is allowing a level of flexibility for state regulatory authorities to employ, employ market-based energy prices. And what that means for APPA members is that it lowers, it allows them to um, have an opportunity for states to look at the price of QF output, what the market will bear, and the APPA membership in that respect who have to purchase this output have a, a more flexible opportunity to, to serve their members at the lowest possible cost. So that's one of the things that APPA applauded the commission for um, in, in maintaining this, what we call cooperative federalism, a, a system where FERC and the state's work together as opposed to FERC issuing mandates. It also allows um, this lowering of the, the mandatory purchase obligation that, that Meg was talking about, allows for this, the APPA you know, public power members to meet the state renewable, perform, uh, renewable portfolio standards and, and other requirements in their own ways without having to purchase the output of QFs that in some instances, uh, APPA members have said they've had to purchase the output of ener for energy that they don't necessarily need. And so this flexibility and the lowering of the uh, threshold for the mandatory purchase obligation allow APPA membership, allow the public power utilities to meet their needs in, in the, the way that they determine best. Great, so Adrian and Meg, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a very enlightening conversation. Um, and just an FYI to our listeners, um, there's a lot more information about the manual available on APPA's website, uh, including uh, having the ability to download um, the report. Um, so, Adrian, Met, thanks again for taking the time to uh, speak with us today. Our pleasure. Thanks very thanks. much.